0: So if you would with me, please open to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to the Great Commission. We'll go ahead and start there, and then we'll start digging into this. Starting in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you've been in church for any amount of time whatsoever, often when the Great Commission is talked about and we think of the Great Commission, we simply hear a call to evangelism and a a call to missions, which it is. But it's important to know that evangelism is simply the start. It's the first step of the Great Commission. The real journey is in going and making disciples and teaching them. The journey is in the discipleship. I think we often miss that discipleship is the real meat of the the Great Commission because we don't understand the culture of that day and all the ways in which understanding the culture impacts the text. When we hear the Great Commission, we aren't hearing through the ears of Jesus' disciples. And therefore, we miss the real depths of what it means and what it looks like to be a Great Commission disciple. To be a Great Commission disciple who makes disciples. So today, in an effort to help us attempt to see through the eyes of Jesus' disciples and to hear through their ears, we're going to take a dive into the Jewish educational system of Jesus' day and what that rabbi and disciple relationship looked like. So the Jewish education system in Jesus' day placed a huge emphasis on the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. It was the center of Jewish life in that time and their formal education system reflected that as well. In fact, the Torah held such a high place in Jewish society that the highest-ranking rabbis of the day, known as rabbis with authority, were essentially the rock stars of the day. They were who everybody looked up to, who everybody aspired to be. They were the ancient Taylor Swifts, if you will. Everybody knew who these rabbis were. And it was every boy's dream to grow up and be one of these rabbis. I know that's where the Taylor Swift thing falls apart, but just... Bear with me. These rabbis were the pinnacle of success in that society. And during Jesus' time, Israel had a formal education system that taught people about the Torah. And ultimately, at the end of this system, the best of the best students would have an opportunity to move on and have a path laid before them where they'd have the opportunity to become a rabbi with authority. So here's what the education system looked like, okay? First level is from ages 5 to 10. This was called Bet Sefer, In English, that's house of the book. This was a formal education in a synagogue, in a local synagogue, taught by a local rabbi. And it was there for both boys and girls. Here they would learn a foundational knowledge of the the Torah. Again, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy. And learn some of the Psalms as well. And they also focused on learning the skill of memorization. And it was at this point when you finished that level of education that if you were a girl, if you were a female, you would typically be done. You would finish your education and the, the thinking was like they're going to be married in the next few years anyway. Typically in that day they were married by about the age of 13. So there's no reason for them to continue on. So The girls would drop out at that point. And after the boys finished this first level of education they would begin to learn the family trade. Because the edu- this education system was so competitive, it's extremely competitive, and if they couldn't cut it in ter- terms of being towards the top of their class at each level they would not move on to that next level and they would simply join the family business. If you were good enough in that first level, that second level is called Bet Talmud, which means house of learning. This again was taught in a local synagogue by a local rabbi. And the students here would begin to learn the Torah, what is called the Mishnah. And the Torah, if you have a study Bible with you today or if you use a study Bible ever, it's essentially like that, where it has the scriptures and it has commentary around it. That was the Mishnah. And and the thing I want you to clue in on, on this level, is something we're going to come back to a couple times. At this level, the students learned the art of good questions. It was believed that the mark of a good student wasn't in the answers that they gave, but was it in the questions that they asked. One rabbi stated that when he would come home from school each day, his mom, instead of, like we we do, we we ask, what's the question we ask? What'd you learn? Right? What'd you learn? In that day, the mom would ask, if he had asked any good questions. And the thought was that if he could ask good questions, then he was learning everything he needed to know. Asking a good question was a pretty impressive skill. It's unlike what we think of when we think of asking good questions. Here's what that looks like. Back in that day, as they learned the skill of asking good questions, they both answered the previous question that was asked and asked a question in order to continue the conversation. We see an example of this in Luke chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. That's when Jesus' parents had left Jerusalem and they had gone a little little bit a ways and they realized that in this caravan of people that are traveling back home, Jesus was nowhere to be found. Jesus was nowhere to be found. And So verses 46 and 47 of Luke chapter 2 say, Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He asked questions. They were amazed at his answers. Now, if you were smart enough, if you were good enough to finish this level of education and to continue on, you would go on from the ages about 13 to 15 into the third level of education. And that's called Bet Midrash or House of Study in English. This was the third and final level of the Jewish formal education system. And the rest of those boys, again, who didn't make the cut, simply went into the family business. Again, this level was taught, like the others, in a local synagogue by a local rabbi. And this level was open for anybody in the community to drop in and listen to the, as their schedule allowed as well, in, in order to help them to continue their lay education. The focus here was to engage all scripture to discuss rabbinical legal decisions and to learn how to debate with teachers. If you made it all the way through the formal education system back in the day and you wanted to continue on that career path towards becoming a rabbi, you would become or attempt to become a Talmud or a disciple. And in order to become a disciple, you would have to pursue a rabbi with authority and you would have to apply to be his disciple. And there's a few differences. There's, There's actually quite a few differences between a rabbi, a local rabbi, and a rabbi with authority. But there's three in particular that I want to mention today so that we we can keep them in mind as we continue on. First is, whereas a local rabbi would typically serve locally in a local synagogue, a rabbi with authority would travel around, just as we saw Jesus do. Second, a local rabbi was not able to have disciples, whereas a rabbi with authority was allowed to make disciples. And third, it was only rabbis with authority that could ordain others to be rabbis with authority. So if you had finished going through the education system, you had passed everything, you were top of your class, you wanted to continue down that path towards being a rabbi with authority, you would have to track down one of these rabbis with authority. And this this was no easy task. In Jesus' day, it's estimated that there were about 35 to 60 of these guys around, And if you wanted to be their disciple, it wasn't simply filling out an application like, yeah, we got room for you, stamp approved kind of thing. It looked quite different. When you approached one of these rabbis, you approached them and they grilled you with questions. The goal of these rabbis wasn't simply to find the most studious disciples, the ones who would be able to memorize the most information and take on the most knowledge. But the, the goal for these rabbis was that his disciples would become as he is that they would look like him in every way and essentially become his clone. The idea was that when a rabbi's disciples became just like him in every way, then that rabbi's teachings would continue to go forth in the world. So in order to reach that goal, it was essential that any disciple that was taken on, that, that disciple would be dedicated to learning everything his rabbi knew. He would be dedicated to learning how to think in every situation, how his rabbi thought, to talk with, converse with, and answer in any conversation, how his rabbi would have answered, to act in every way just as his rabbi would act. Disciples would take this 100% and perfect imitation so seriously that it's been suggested to me they would follow their rabbi as he went into the bathroom just in case he said a blessing as he was doing his business. That's how seriously they took this. And beyond that, the closeness of this rabbi-discipleship disciple relationship was not envisioned to be as a student and teacher, as we often think about it, but rather a father and son. In the Old Testament, there's a couple examples of what a rabbi-disciple relationship looks like. We have Moses and Joshua, and we have Elijah and Elisha. And looking at Elijah and Elisha, and there, there's others, but there's a couple right there for you, but looking at Elijah and Elisha, in, in 2 Kings 2.12, we see that Elisha As Elijah is being taken away in a chariot, Elisha cries, My father! My father! And when we look at the New Testament, we see that as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1-2, he calls Timothy my beloved son. And in fact, your rabbi is actually supposed to be viewed as more important than your father. See, in the Mishnah, it says that if your father and your rabbi are both captured, and if you can only afford to ransom one of them, You ransom your rabbi. This is because while your father brought you into this world, it is your rabbi who will get you into the world to come. So, getting back to the Great Commission, one of the first things we have to recognize here when we read the Great Commission is that Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? He's talking to his disciples about making disciples. So the first question I want to ask, I guess, is when Jesus' disciples heard the words, follow me, what did they hear? What were they committing to? Why in the world would they drop everything and follow him? When Jesus' disciples heard the words, follow me, first thing they heard was an invitation to chase their dream. Remember, it was every boy's dream to become one of these rabbis with authority. And all his disciples had failed out of the Jewish education system, at least in the sense that they weren't the cream of the crop and they weren't good enough to move on. So their dreams would have been shattered at whatever point they were kicked out of the education system. And Jesus coming to them would have been immediately seen as an opportunity to continue to pursue that dream. When Jesus' disciples heard the words, follow me, they heard a long-term commitment. Now generally in that day, you would start as a disciple under a rabbi about the age of 15, and you wouldn't be finished until about the age of 30. Uh, There's a a Jewish writing that says that you enter your full vigor at about 30, which meant that at that point in time, they would be ready to become disciples. However, that being said, what they technically committed to, there's no guarantee that by the age of 30 that they would become a, a rabbi. So what they technically committed to was an indefinite period of time. When Jesus' disciples heard, follow me, they heard an invitation to discipleship. And they understood that rabbi-disciple relationship. They understood what discipleship truly meant and looked like. That it meant learning everything Jesus knew. Learning how to think as Jesus thought. To talk like he talked. To act as he acted. That they would have to do whatever Jesus had asked of them. and That they would spend many days away from home following Jesus, traveling with him, and that they would have to go wherever Jesus took them, often having no idea whatsoever as to where they were headed. Being a disciple of Christ, both then and now, means imitating Christ in every way, while we serve him however we are asked, and going wherever we are sent. This was the mindset of the disciples as they heard the Great Commission. This was the lens through which they viewed life. So the question is, when the disciples, when Jesus' disciples heard the Great Commission, what was it they heard? First, I think we need to keep in mind the context of what had just happened prior to Jesus giving the Great Commission. You see, it had only been a handful of days since Jesus had resurrected, since the resurrection took place. And in Matthew 28, 17, one verse before we typically look at the start of the Great Commission there, it says, When they saw him, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. See, their heads were still spinning. Several of them couldn't even understand that Jesus was alive. And although Jesus told them several times throughout their years together that he would die and he would be resurrected, they didn't understand that. And although he was standing right in front of them at that moment, they couldn't believe that that was him. In fact, the disciples hadn't seemed to understand a lot of what Jesus said, if we're being honest, all along throughout their relationship with him. And even the disciples here in verse 17 that were worshiping him and and weren't doubtful and seemed to understand what had taken place, they, they, they still wouldn't have had any idea as to what was about to happen they themselves would have still been stuck looking through their own cultural lenses. And as Jesus was standing in front of them, these disciples probably would have been thinking, well, hey, Jesus, I'm glad you're back because, hey, we got 12 more years of discipleship training to do. Right? The dream to be a rabbi is back on. Let's go! No? Yeah, I can't pull that off. I know. It's okay. But instead of a continuation of their discipleship training, instead of hearing anything that they would have ever expected, they heard something entirely different. Matthew 28, 18 and 19 says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. The first thing they heard in the Great Commission was an ordination. That they were being ordained as rabbis. And as they continued to view life through their cultural lenses, they would have thought ordination was at least a decade away. Remember, In that day, ordination was a declaration. It was a declaration that a disciple was like his rabbi in every way. And it was a confirmation that a disciple was ready to head out on his own, under his own rabbinic authority, and to make his own disciples. And during this, hearing this, Jesus' disciples would have had so many emotions running through them they would have still, again, been confused by the fact that Jesus is standing in front of them trying to wrap their heads around that. Beyond that, they would have been excited for the ordination they have dreamed of their entire lives. This is like you girls dreaming of your perfect wedding, right? And thinking about that. Or like a guy that has a desire to be a professional baseball player thinking about that moment in the future when he hits the Grand Slam in the bottom of the ninth in Game 7 of the World Series to win it for everybody, to win it for his team. This was the kind of dream they had. This was the pinnacle of success for them. And at the same time, they had to be scared out of their minds. At no time would it have ever entered their minds that they were ready to go. The only thing they would have thought was, okay, Jesus, you're back, let's continue. Let's continue. This all would have shocked them They were thinking, what do you mean, Jesus? This does not make any sense. The second thing they heard was a command to go and make disciples. An ordination in that day, if you remember back, talked about how only a rabbi with authority could make rabbis with authority, and it was only rabbis with authority that could have disciples. So an ordination in that day would already allow them to make disciples. But instead of waiting for disciples to approach them, and apply to become their disciples, as was the norm of the day, they would have heard the command to go and to make disciples, just as Jesus did. They would have been thinking, not only am I not ready to have people apply to be my disciple, I'm not ready to go to anybody. Like, how can you possibly think I'm ready to go, Jesus? How can you possibly think I'm ready to go and make disciples? I barely know you at this point. You can't possibly think that I speak like you, that I act like you, that I talk like you, that I look like you. You you speak in parables constantly and I don't understand. You have to pull me to the side and tell me and dumb it down and explain it to me. I am not ready. How could I possibly be ready? But there's even more. Let's take a closer look at this idea of authority and ordination. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to start in verse 23. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. It says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, then why don't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I want you to notice two things here. First, when Jesus was asked who gave him authority? What they were essentially asking was, what rabbi with authority was stupid enough to ordain you? You've been nothing but a headache. You've been nothing but trouble to us. Who can we go to? Probably who can we stone, I mean, given, given their nature. Second thing I want you to, to remember is, you, you guys remember earlier when I was talking about the education system, and on that second level, how to answer with a question, was like one of the premier skills that they were learning? I think that's what we're seeing here. See, Jesus answers with a question. Jesus says, The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And I think what we're seeing here is Jesus is answering and alluding back to his baptism by John being the source of his authority. Not that John gave him his authority. Not that John ordained him. But if we jump back to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we'll take a look at the, the baptism of Jesus real quick. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now at the time of Jesus' baptism we know from Luke chapter 3 verse 23 that Jesus was about 30 years of age which again fits within that Jewish timeline of being prepared to become a rabbi with authority it's time for him to be ordained based on that he's reached his full vigor at that point as they would say. And after Jesus is raised up out of the water God speaks audibly and says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, we know that Jesus is the son of God. I think what's also happening here is that we're seeing a reflection of Jewish ordination in saying that Jesus is ready for ministry. In the same way that a rabbi back then would have said, you know, this is my beloved son. Again, is that father-son relationship and you I am well pleased. Something like that might have been said as they ordained their their disciple as a rabbi himself. And I think additionally what we see, and this is corroborated, this idea that this is the ordination of Jesus by God, and this is corroborated by the fact that Jesus immediately begins his ministry and he starts to make his own disciples following this. When Jesus' disciples hear their ordination from Jesus, another piece that would have shocked them was that Jesus didn't say, hey, you know, by the powers vested in me by the state of Israel, It didn't say, by the powers vested in me by another rabbi. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus grants them authority from God. This would have blown their minds. Jesus says, go, therefore, he's saying, because all authority has been given to me, I'm commissioning you to go and make disciples. The third thing they would have heard when Jesus spoke the Great Commission was that Jesus understood their fear, their fear that they would not be ready. That they didn't know anywhere near enough yet, and that they don't look at all like Jesus at this point. They are not little Jesus clones running around Israel at this point. But Jesus says, don't worry, I'm commanding you to go out and to make disciples, and to teach others, but I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus hears that fear and he promises that he will always be with them as they pursue making disciples. And in Acts 1.8, he tells them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. That he is not sending them out on their own, that they have help. And I think they would have been reminded of John fourteen twenty five and 26, which says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding in you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus' disciples heard an ordination that blew their minds, something they would have never envisioned. Typically in that day, a rabbi with authority would, would say to them like, "Hey, you know what? I took you on as my disciple. I decided I, th- I thought you were probably worthy enough to be my son, and you proved yourself worthy. You've proven that to be true. You now look 100 percent like me, and you now have the authority to go and make disciples of your own." That was what they were thinking. That's what they had envisioned. But instead of hearing what they had envisioned their entire lives, Jesus essentially says to them, You know what? You're right. It's a bit early. And on your own, you're not ready. But I'm commanding you to go out. Not on your own authority. Not in your own strength. But I have ordained you. You've not been ordained by man, but by God. And I am commanding you to go, and you will succeed through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I will always be with you. That is what they would have been hearing. And I think something that is additionally true that they wouldn't have been quite hearing at that point, they wouldn't have quite had a grasp of this because we're able to see the future now and look back upon that whereas they were right in the middle of that situation is this, this is additionally true. Jesus Jesus would have been kind of saying, again, you know what, You're, you're right, you're not ready. You don't look anything like me. In fact, on your own efforts, you never will. You are all sinners who have fallen short of my glory. And I see this, and I understand this. So a few days ago, when I died on that cross, I paid the price for your sins. I did what you could never do. Although you don't look like me, I will make you look like me by clothing you in my righteousness. And I will fill in the gaps that exist between who you are and who I am. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what we should hear when we hear the Great Commission. We need to understand that while evangelism is part of the Great Commission, and evangelism leads to salvation, salvation was never the end goal. It was simply the start. That discipleship is the journey And the meat of the Great Commission and the end goal is to produce, as Lauren would say, mature worshipers. We have to ask the question, if we are his disciples, if we have been sent out in his power, clothed in his righteousness, then why aren't discipleship relationships like these the norm in the church today? If this is what the Great Commission demands of us, then why do we lack so much? Well, the short answer is sin the Bible school answer, the Sunday school answer. But there's a thousand reasons why we do that, and they're all tied to sin. And I want to give you a few examples as to why, why I think we struggle, some of the different ways we struggle. See, Some of us have been brought up in seeker-friendly churches that are so focused on evangelism that they don't equip the saints for the work of the ministry, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. We don't make disciples because we don't understand discipleship. Some of us think that being a disciple of Christ is simply believing the message of the gospel and experiencing a little bit of spiritual growth over our lifetime. That teaching others, discipling others is some higher level of Christianity. That Christianity has different subscription levels based on how much you are willing to pay. That the cost and sacrifice that comes with making disciples is too high of a cost and you prefer to deal with ads and stay at the free subscription level. We've subscribed to what we perceive as a lower level of Christianity that's available to us. And we're only willing to follow Christ as long as it doesn't really require anything of us. Guess what? I think you already know this. There is only one level. And along those same lines, some of us are, are caught up in seeing our relationship with Christ through our cultural lenses rather than through biblical lenses. We go to church on Sunday and we go home to our kingdoms and we enter our castles where we can hide away from the world and do whatever it is that entertains us and pleases us. We tuck ourselves away from the world and those around us because unlike 30 years ago, we no longer have need for relationship. It doesn't do anything for us. Everything we desire now comes directly to us in two days, one day, same day a lot of the times now. Relationships are no longer necessary to sustain us in any way outside of our relationship with Amazon, our cell phone providers, our cable and internet providers, and our streaming services. We don't make disciples because what we want is most important. And again, we're only willing to be a disciple of Christ as long as it doesn't require anything of us and it doesn't interfere with our plans to enjoy life as we see fit. Some of us think that it's the pastor's job or the church's job to do discipleship. There's a quick and easy way to figure out if you struggle along these lines. Ask yourself the question, if I were to invite somebody to church and they got saved, do I see that as my responsibility to disciple them or is my first thought to go, hey, I need to hand this off to Steve or to Lauren or to somebody else? Some of us don't think that we know enough or that we have anything to share. heard uh, a couple weeks ago somebody say that they were too old but I want to submit to you that if God prior to our lives here on earth created good works for us to walk in as it says in Ephesians 2 10 then if we're still here he's not done with us and we have more to accomplish in between songs earlier Danielle read to us this when I see the cross I see the premium that God places on the works that he has prepared for me how valuable these works must be if Christ would die so that I might now perform them and how precious are those for whom these works are done if Christ would die that they might be served if Jesus died and gave himself up for the church as it says in Ephesians 5:25 and if his chosen method to grow the church was by sending out disciples who would make disciples then we can be assured that one of these good works that was prepared for us to walk in One of these good works that Christ died for us to do was to make disciples and to teach each other. You're not too old. Others might think they're too young. We know that Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone look down on him because he is young, but to set an example. And some of you think you simply don't know enough. And to be fair, you may not know enough if if you're a new believer or if you weren't raised in a Christian house with parents that regularly taught you the Bible and discipled you, or if you've been in churches that are focused on evangelism in each service, they're focused on the milk rather than the meat, they're focused on evangelism rather than equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. However, hear this. If you know that you don't know enough, then you know enough to know that you need to learn, that you need to be taught. I'll give you one last thought. I I think we often use terminology, and I myself have used it probably 10 times today already at least, like the word call or the word calling. We are told that we are called to make disciples and afraid that we often picture this like getting a phone call, right? Like I got a phone call. It's as if my phone is ringing. I go, oh, it's uh, Lauren calling me. He's Probably going to want something. I'd kind of rather just let that go to voicemail and pretend like I never saw it. You see, we, we think that when it comes to the calling or the command to go and make disciples and to teach each other what we know, that we can simply send Jesus to voicemail and pretend that we never saw There's a thousand reasons why the rabbi-discipleship relationship is not the norm in the church today. It's not the norm in the lives of individual Christians. But regardless of why it's not happening, it's not something that we can ignore. If we are going to obey the command of our Savior and be great commissioned disciples who make disciples, then we have to be like Paul when he said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. What does it look like to fulfill the Great Commission, to be a Great Commission disciple? What does that look like here at PCBC? What does it look like to be a disciple who makes disciples? I think John MacArthur summed up uh, church, local church discipleship quite well, and, and he says this, Find someone who knows more than you and learn from them. And find somebody who you know more than, or who knows less than you, and teach At PCBC, we have a philosophy of discipleship that you guys have probably all heard of, or at least most of you have heard of before. And it's called rows, Circles, and some the last term kind of changes depending on the day, but faces, essentially. And in rows, what's happening is what you're doing right now. You're simply sitting there. There is no communication between the people around you. You are looking up front. And in circles, so, so there's no relationship, just to be clear. And in circles... That's, that's more like workshop, that's more like men's breakfast, that's more like going to a Bible study, joining a discipleship group, where, you, where you're actually spending time in small groups of people, getting to know one another and digging into the Word a little bit. And there's discipleship happening at both of these levels, but ultimately we want to get to the faces level. And the faces would be signified just like a line or a triangle. And the point is that there's only two points or three points. It's two people or three people meeting. But to get to that point, in order to get to that point where we can get into the depth of discipleship and where we can really work with each other to look more like Christ and build those deep relationships where we have those father-son relationships, this seems silly, but I I say it because I think we often fail at this, but it requires some level of prior relationship. In other words, you have to get to know people, and people have to be able to get to know you. So what that looks like here is is staying around for fellowship time, or coming early for fellowship time if you're in second service, or attending workshop, or serving alongside others in a ministry. You don't have to do any of these. You don't have to do all of these. You can do something else entirely, but you have to be involved in some way. You have to be involved so that you can get to know others and they can get to know you. As we pursue discipleship here at PCBC, we have to keep in mind that we are commanded to go. There's been some debate over the years as to whether this go and make disciples means to literally get up and go or whether it means to do it as you are going, as you see people throughout life. Uh, I know Steve, I believe Lauren as well, and and myself all think and, and are pretty convinced that this means we are to go. I think it's pretty clear if we look at Jesus' example, that when he is ordained, he simply goes and makes disciples. He goes to people, in contrast of the rabbis of his day, he goes to them and he says, follow me. So the question is begged. If I'm supposed to go, if I'm supposed to go to others here at PCVC, who am I supposed to go to? And the quick answer is anyone. Anyone and everyone who shares the faith and is willing to commit to a discipleship relationship with you. And that being said, I think there's reason to go down this path a little further. I think, and I'll raise my hand on this one, okay? I'm not pointing at you guys, I'm pointing at me. I think that one of the ways we often fail when it comes to discipleship in the local church is that we look for people who look exactly like us. We look for somebody that is in that particular age range, somebody we share a common interest or hobby with, or even simply people that are easy to get along with. What we can see from Jesus is that the biggest thing that he and his disciples seem to have in common is their faith. When we consider Jesus' example... We can see that he chose a pretty interesting group of individuals, right? It had to be pretty frustrating to work with Peter at times. He was quite emotional, could be a bit of a loose cannon, and I think you would agree with me it's not every day that somebody cuts somebody else's ear off. It's a little, little crazy to me. Jesus also chose James and John, the sons of Zebedee. I, I told the first service, the sons of thunder. So if you're having twins in the future, keep that in mind. as like a superhero nickname kind of thing. But he chose James and John, who were constantly worried about doing everything they could to make sure that they were the most important in his kingdom. They were extremely selfish. That had to get old. Jesus chose Matthew, who was a tax collector and was a traitor to the Jewish people since he was somebody that worked on behalf of Rome. And I only really bring Matthew up because he chose Simon, Simon the Zealot, A zealot was like a local Jewish terrorist of that day, essentially. They wanted to cause issues because they wanted to stir everybody up and ultimately cause an overthrow of the Roman authority that was governing them. And so they had a a massive hate of anybody that had anything to do with Rome. And Matthew essentially worked for Rome. And Jesus brings these two together going, hey, that's a good idea. Jesus did anything but choose people who were easy to work with. As we seek to disciple and to teach others what it means to look like Christ in every way, we need to go into it understanding that discipleship is done out of a desire to obey God and to serve others. To treat those we teach as if they were our sons. When our children are a massive pain, do we simply throw them in a closet and forget about them? Anybody want to claim that? Corbin, wow, I didn't know you had kids, buddy. But, but seriously, this is what this relationship, it's supposed to be a father-son kind of relationship, that kind of closeness. We don't take, take people like that and just cast them aside. We don't take our children and cast them aside. Jesus said that he did not come to be served as the rest of the rabbis of his day were, but he came to serve, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus willingly worked through all the sin, all the pride, all the selfishness, the frustrations, the immaturity with all of his disciples in order to serve them and to help them. Now this doesn't mean that if you come across somebody who you you might want to have this kind of a, a discipleship relationship with and you have things in common with them, you share hobbies, that you have to ignore them because you share hobbies. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you cannot exclude people from being your disciple simply because you don't have anything in common outside of your faith. That's not okay. You may be asking, how am I just supposed to approach somebody and say, "Hey, you know what? I know a lot. You seem to not know anything. So why don't I teach you?" How do we do that without sounding arrogant? That's a good question. Thank you for asking. I think it's very simple, and it comes down to our motivation, right? If we come to somebody out of a desire to be obedient to the command to make disciples, if we come out of a heart of love that wants to serve that individual. That will show through, and they will be receptive to that. You don't have to walk straight up to somebody. How awkward would that be? We we get done with church here today, and you just walk straight up to somebody. Hey, you want to be my disciple? It just doesn't work well like that. So ask somebody to, to come over for dinner, to go out to lunch, to grab a coffee. Then pursue a conversation with them around biblical truth, and ask them if they would desire to continue that on an ongoing basis. And as you continue to meet and get to know their strengths and their weaknesses, and you try to understand how you can help them to understand what it means to be a disciple and to be like and look like Christ in every way, work to prepare them to make disciples themselves in the future. I think one of the most important pieces of all this is intentionality. If we are filling the role of the rabbi or the teacher, we have to go into it with the intent of helping the individual to develop into a mature worshiper and prepare them to go and make disciples of their own. And if we are in the role of the disciple, we need to pursue that role seriously. We need to be committed to learning, just as Jesus disciples. We need to be committed to learning Scripture, learning what it means to be Christ-like, with the goal in mind that one day we ourselves will be prepared to make disciples. And again we need to be able to say one day, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. I want to say this as well to those who do not consider themselves knowledgeable enough at this point to disciple somebody. While the Great Commission may command all believers to go out and to make disciples, if you are somebody who does not know enough, if you are somebody that is new to the faith, or immature in your faith for whatever reason, You need to understand that this does not get you off the hook. You can't simply sit back and wait for somebody to approach you. See, In a a perfect world, that would be the case, where you could just sit back and wait for somebody to come to you. But we're a church of sinners. Is that okay I say that? We are a church of sinners. And that means that there's going to be times, there's going to be lots of times, where each of us fails in our role as disciple-makers. That's going to impact you as well, if if you are one of these that don't consider yourselves knowledgeable enough. I believe that's why John MacArthur, when he explains discipleship in the local churches he does, says, find someone who knows more than you and learn from them. He gets it. This isn't perfect. We're not perfect when we're saved you want to grow in Christ-likeness, you need to be willing to get to know people and to seek out somebody who can teach you as well. All this to say this, I want to leave you with two simple questions today, two simple questions that you can work to answer as you pursue what it looks like to be a Great Commission disciple in your life. Who am I going to teach? Who is going to teach me? Pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for helping us to understand what Great Commission discipleship looks like. Father, I pray that as each of us, myself included, has areas in terms of making disciples where, where we struggle, we have things we want to keep a firm grasp on instead of hold with an open hand. Father, we're unwilling to do this or that, or we're unwilling to work with this person or that person. Father, that you would work in each of our lives. You would help us to understand the importance of being a Great Commission disciple. Father, and the importance of the obedience that that we have to stand in when it comes to being a disciple that makes disciples. Father, I thank you so much for for the opportunity to to share this today, and and I pray that you would help each and every one of us to, to understand what our lives at PCBC need to look like here as we pursue Great Commission Discipleship. I pray all this in your name.